I'm Rick Stoll. For those of you who don't know, I have been with animal science. Um, I'm also over in biological systems engineering. And you might be wondering why I'm introducing uh, Dr. Collier here. Um, so I'll, I'll introduce it this way. Uh, I'm going to keep this short, by the way, and let uh, him introduce himself and his wife. Um, when I was a PhD student at Michigan State, uh, back before many of you graduate students were probably born, um, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I won't hold your ears. I was doing what graduate students are supposed to do and, and doing a good uh, literature reviews I could. And, and my work was on ventilation and how uh, ventilation might mitigate heat stress in dairy cattle. And as I'm going through, uh, if you're doing this or as you do, as you did this, you probably recognize that there's probably a handful of names that keep popping up over and over and over. And um, for me at that time, it was uh, Dr. Bob Collier. His name kept um, popping up and uh, the work that they were doing at the University of Florida back at that time was just obviously cutting edge. And, um, and so uh, Dr. Collier's work focuses on, focuses on environmental effects, uh, especially heat stress on gene function. And uh, he uh, began his career at the University of Florida, uh, then was hired by Monsanto Company to be director of the Dairy Research Program. Uh, he spent, uh, since 1999, at the University of Arizona, uh, served as department head for a while, uh, the animal science department there, and now he's professor emeritus. And uh, along the way, he's taught physiology of domestic, anatomy and physiology of domestic animals. So relate to students, obviously, uh, and teaching as well as uh, research. So with that, I'll let you. Thank uh, you. Yeah. Thank you a more. Well, thank the department and uh, students for uh, the opportunity to talk to you today. Um, the general topic here I'm going to be talking about is uh, frontiers of thermal biology. Uh, in order to get to the frontier, uh, we have to kind of go through the history of the field so you understand how these uh, areas develop. So I'm going to, I'm going to uh, do, uh, let's see if I can get this to advance. Is this, uh, I should check Hit the escape button. Is it, uh, is this arrow, right? Or is it, do I just click? I think it's just escape button. Didn't show. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Okay, good. So the, the topic areas that I want to talk about progression of understanding, which is uh, how we uh, uh, began our, our, the evolution of our thinking about animals uh, interacting with the environment, especially in this case cattle, uh, which is kind of split into uh, we first uh, began to look at the impact of environment on cattle. Then we realized that cattle were affecting the environment. So there's a component that we've uh, uh, added to this in, in the biology of uh, our domestic animal uh, <coughs> industries. And then we'll talk about current future trends. Um, just to put it in perspective, you know, we domesticated livestock about 8,000 BC. But we didn't even uh, start identifying breeds till about 1500s. So a long time, uh, was in there where we really didn't pay much attention to what animals were doing to just whether you owned one or not. Um, and we really didn't think about starting to measure differences between animals in their production until the 1900s. So things, things have really progressed pretty rapidly after that. Around the 1940s, uh, with, with two major labs, uh, the Brody, uh, a lab at Missouri and in the lab of uh, uh, Kurt, uh, I, I can't remember his last name, that I wrote The Fire of Life uh, at, at, uh, at the uh, University of California, Davis. Uh, no, I'll come back to those guys, but they were the first to really establish uh, factors that regulate metabolism. And then once we started looking at that, we began to look at the impact of environment on metabolism. And controlled environment uh, facilities uh, built in the 50s were uh, able to give us that kind of capacity 
And then we really started moving into how do we reduce the effects of the thermal environment on production? Because we know if, it, if an environment is stressful, it's going to increase the cost, the maintenance cost of the animal, which means it's altered based on metabolism. And if, when you do that, that cost has to be paid out of production. So the energy for milk and the energy for meat is reduced in order to support the increased basal metabolic rate required to meet the stress. So because we measured metabolism and we could accurately define how much was being diverted, we began to understand the value of various cooling methods or warming. Uh, so that's where the heat stress indices and abatement we've been working on since the 60s. And then climatology began in the 70s where we started to think our climate's changing, and is this uh, induced by activities of humans? <clears throat> and there's there's a lot of, a lot of evidence to support that, uh, and that's really not the topic of my talk today. But it is uh, part now the reducing the carbon footprint of our egg industries is part of what we do in agriculture to uh, meet the requirement to, to not have an adverse effect on the environment. So if you look at uh, the origin of cattle, uh, there's, there's basically three centers. Uh, two, uh, you know, the Boss Taurus uh, cattle came out of the Fertile Crescent and the Boss Indicus uh, cattle uh, in uh, India, and there's another group called the Sangha that was uh, really kind of a cross between, if you notice here, the uh, Boss Indicus and Boss Taurus, and these African uh, Sangha cattle, which were uh, evolving to become heat tolerant, are also a, uh, considered a separate, separate group. But the Bostars cattle, of course, uh, are the basis for the U.S. dairy industry, are all Bostars. Uh, there are some Boss Indicus breeds that are used for milk production, but they are, are not of any importance in the U.S. dairy industry. They are in some other dairy industries, uh, primarily Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, as well as India. Because India is a lacto-vegetarian uh, culture where they do not eat meat uh, as a whole, but uh, they do get their protein source from milk. Um, milk is a major uh, product uh, source of protein in uh, India. So there are a lot of, obviously, a lot of Bostonicus breeds there. Uh, just want to point out down here, the cattle to the New, Euro New World about 500 years ago. Now, uh, once we started identifying breeds around the 1500s, uh, we did this uh, in many in many cases based on hair coat. Uh, different breeds had uh, different hair coat. So the, the, co the coat characteristics uh, often were a, an identifying component uh, of a specific breed. Uh, what we didn't know is that we were also selecting for uh, differences in their interaction with the environment because the hair coat has a big effect on the ability of animals to dissipate heat loads, especially <coughs> evaporative heat loads. Uh, so, um, you know, these shaggy, these are Scottish cattle, obviously a shaggy hair coat is favorable in a cold environment, but it certainly isn't favorable in a hot environment especially a hot human environment. So uh, measuring metabolism in the 40s, uh, you know, Max Clymer was the name I, I couldn't remember, but he and Samuel Brody were pioneers in this, and they both wrote uh, books that everyone should read. Uh, I've got copies of Bioenergetics and Growth, which was Brody's book, and then Fire of Life, an introduction to animal energetics by Clymer. Uh, they, they were contemporaries, they, they worked at the same time and uh, had huge impact 
on our understanding of how uh, basal metabolism uh, is, is, is basically a component of body weight. And you have formulas, if you know the body weight, you can calculate not only the basal metabolic rate of an animal, but also its surface area. And you can start to think about how much heat you can move across that surface area based on the, the size of the gradient uh, between the environment and the animal. So all of this uh, came out of this pioneering work by these guys. And then uh, a whole bunch of people contributed to uh, the uh, work that followed that. And some of these are listed below uh, Dennis Armstrong and Frank Wiersma, who put together the first uh, THI chart. Uh, Don Spires at Missouri, John Goggin, who still works uh, in Australia, the University of Brisbane. Terry Mader uh, in, here uh, in Nebraska on the beef side, and, and Leroy Hahn, who uh, I had the pleasure of interacting with here at meeting this week, have made uh, very big contributions to this area. And we, we understand uh, the factors that uh, are important when uh, calculating um, heat exchange and basically a combined measure of the air temperature and uh, the humidity. The air temperature is important because uh, three of the four routes of heat loss, conduction, convection, radiation, are sensible routes that require thermal gradient. So they, they go to zero when the air temperature or the environment is at the body temperature, which in Arizona is about every day. You know, you, that leaves just one route of heat loss left, and that's evaporative, <coughs> and that works on a vapor pressure gradient. It doesn't work on a temperature gradient. So relative humidity becomes important, and that's why the temperature humidity index uh, is a pretty good way to evaluate the total effect of the environment on an animal. And if you really want to take into account solar radiation, then you have to use what's called a black globe humidity index. See, the air temperature is the temperature in the shade. It's the temperature of the air, regardless of whether you're standing in the open or standing in the shade. So if it's 100 degrees air temperature, that's dry bulb thermometer. That means it's 100 degrees under a shade or 100 degrees out in the open as far as air. But everyone knows that if you're standing in the open, it's hot. Uh, what you're feeling there is the infrared uh, radiation from the sun. And uh, dry bulb thermometers do not measure that. They can only measure the temperature of the air. So a black globe, which is really just a uh, black copper globe painted flat black, uh, will heat up uh, relative to the, the amount of solar radiation it gets. And so the air temperature inside that black globe is a combined measure of solar radiation, air temperature, and also any coolant effects, the wind speed. So if you really want to get a full uh, evaluation of the heat load in animals in the sun, you want to use, instead of just THI, you want to use the black globe humidity index, which gives you the full heat load on those animals. We recently, uh, Arizona, we recently uh, revised the temperature humidity index for lactating cows. The reason we did that is because the original one was based on cows producing 15 kilos of milk a day, or 15 liters, about 35 pounds. Today's dairy cows are producing over 100 pounds of milk. You know, at, at 15 uh, liters a day, cows are dried off because that's too low. So we use high producing cows, and uh, the LTHI was, you know, uh, the threshold was around 72, and uh, because of the high production, uh, the heat associated with high production, that's been dropped now to 68. And we've also tried to uh, tag in some other things uh, that allow uh, the producer to understand, and one of them is respiration rate. Uh, animals, uh, cattle respire in about 30, 40 breaths a minute under thermal neutral conditions. <clears throat> if they get to 60 breaths per minute, uh, they are at the stress threshold. Uh, this this is uh, half maximal. They'll go to 120 breaths per minute at maximal respiration rates. So for some time uh, now, the 
Israelis first started using it, but it's been adopted in the U.S. at 60 breaths per minute. When you look at uh, THI of 68 for a lactating dairy cow, she's going to be at, at 60 breaths per minute. And then it goes up from there. And of course, severe stress, uh, you know, that, that's a real problem. You think, well, animals uh, could die at that. Yes, they will. In fact, uh, animals start dying at a relatively low THI. And uh, that's been published by a group uh, at the University of Tuscany. They looked at the breakpoint. You can see a minimum THI of only 70 and a maximum THI of 80. They get a rapid increase in death rate. And where do you think most of those cows are dying? Anybody have a guess? Where are you? Who, which cows are dying? Remember, uh, if stresses are additive, so if you got cows that have multiple stressors on them, where are those cows located? They're located in the sick barn. Guess what? You go to the average dairy, is there any cooling in the sick barn? Nope. Most dairies don't provide any cooling in the sick barn, which is exactly the animals that need it the most. Because it's really understanding, you know, with the stresses are additive, you got a cow that's got detritus, mastitis, and she's off feet because maybe she's ketotic. Uh, and then you subject her to heat stress, that's the cow that's likely to die. And they confirmed that with this study. So we need to pay more attention. This is an area that needs a lot of work on protecting those animals that are most susceptible. You can pay, you know, a dairy cow's worth about $2,000. So you can buy a lot of cooling for $2,000. I was in California in 2006 when they had that 10 day heat wave and it costed dairy industry of California, a billion dollars in 10 days. And these dairy farmers would say, well, we just can't justify spending that kind of money to cool animals. And I said, you know, you could have cooled every dairy cow in California for a billion dollars. Um, pretty, pretty effective. So it's all relative. I mean, uh, the thing about, uh, the thing we have to worry about with climate change is not so much the average, but these rare events that become more severe and are occurring more often. And then those like a 10 day period of extreme heat stress on an industry that's not prepared for it can, can basically wipe out that industry. And uh, so that's the kind of thing we have to be concerned about. Heat abatement strategies, you want to minimize heat gain and you want to maximize heat loss. And so we do these things uh, like reduce air temperature provide shade, which is the cheapest form of protection. And then we want to allow animals to conduct uh, heat away if we can. We use forced convection, we wet cows to evaporate water from them. And we actually use evaporative cooling to drop the air temperature. All of this is designed to, to uh, put the gradient back so the cows can move the heat out. Uh, when the air temperature is at the body temperature of the animal, the heat cannot flow out of the cow. It's actually gonna reverse and start flowing into the cow. And she's also producing a lot of heat. But, uh, so we have these uh, fairly advanced cooling systems in, in Arizona. Uh, just behaviorally, I can tell you, those cows are cool. And the reason you know that is because they're all lying down. If an animal's heat stress, it has to stand up because once it starts breathing, above 60 breaths per minute, it can't do that lying down. It has to get up on its feet. And it just rocks back and forth. So uh, those cows are cool. I can tell that just by one look at them. Uh, you can see uh, the other thing is they'd be ruminating, which they don't do if they're heat stressed. You look at the respiration rate, if they're, if they're below <coughs> 60 breaths per minute, they're doing okay. And uh, but these systems, uh, are expensive, capital-wise. Uh, the crowd cool, this reverse chimney, which is pulling air and mixing it with water at various fan speeds, will go through 200 gallons per cow per day. Okay, we're, we're essentially near uh, water rationing in Arizona, because Lake Powell only has to drop like two more feet, and they're gonna institute water rationing. So uh, we have to start uh, coming up with systems that are passive, that don't require large amounts of water and large amounts of electricity to assist in, 
and that's an area that is, is a frontier. We, we need new engineering to passively cool confinement animal operations if they're going to, because the cost of water and the cost of electricity keeps rising. If you can't even get it, um, obviously you're in big trouble. The concept of homeoresis developed by Bauman and Curry in 1980 uh, also plays into uh, our understanding of animals in the environment because when animals, animals undergo acclimatization or adaptation to stressors, uh, the process is homeoretic. In other words, metabolism is coordinated to support a new physiological state. And uh, so if you look at acclimatization and homeoresis, why uh, physiologists published in 1976 that when animals acclimatize, they have intracellular biochemical and biophysical changes. It's chronic, it takes uh, weeks or months to establish. It's not homeostatic, so it's not minute to minute. Uh, there's a hormonal link in the pathway from the central nervous system to the effector cells, which are uh, multiple organs throughout the body. And it enhances the ability of the effector cell to respond to the disturbance. So basically, uh, you know, Dale Bauman has been continuing his uh, uh, characterization of homeoresis and acclimatization is squarely inside uh, that process. So it's a homeoretic process, which means basically uh, you change the response of tissues to homeostatic signals. So one example would be response to insulin, response to epinephrine, is altered in the acclimatized animal. And so uh, these are, uh, this is an area that's still being actively investigated. And a person there would be, uh, an example would be Lance Baumgart's work looking at uh, energy metabolism in the uh, heat stressed animal. Heat stress carryover effects, uh, you know, when I was at Florida, uh, I was looking at this uh, pattern, uh, season in uh, milk yield. Everybody knew there was a seasonal trend in milk yield and, and composition, but the yield curve, if you look here, uh, which is red, uh, bottoms out here in September, October, and the composition curve really bottoms out in, in July, August. This is peak temperature here. So it's actually cooling off here. So why would, uh, if this is direct effect of heat stress on milk yield, why would it be September, October, when, it, when it's uh, at its lowest point. And we looked at the birth weight pattern, and this is from a thousand uh, calves born at the University of Florida, uh, their research unit over a 20 year period. And there was a pronounced 10 pound range in birth weight. So there is a relationship between the placenta and the mammary gland, as far as uh, the development of the mammary gland is controlled by the placenta during pregnancy. There's also a relationship between the placenta and birth weight. When animals are heat stressed during late gestation, they have lower birth weight uh, calves, and the placenta is also reduced in size. So what we did a study we published in 82 over here, the first one uh, showing that uh, if you've just provided shade, that's all we did, provide shade to dry cows because at that time, producers in Florida just put their dry cows in open pasture because they weren't producing milk. It didn't need uh, protection, they thought, and so they didn't provide anything for them other than uh, forage. <coughs> so just providing shade, we could show a measurable increase in birth weight and milk yield postpartum. Uh, since then, uh, this is uh, Wolfenson at Hebrew University. Uh, this is a study in Mexico. Then there's a, a bunch of them at uh, Florida. And the more cooling you provide, the bigger the difference. Uh, so now Tau uh, in 2012 published, we got 3,000 pounds of additional milk in the next lactation by uh, not only providing shade, but also fans and misters to cool dry cows. So protecting the dry cow has good carryover effects in the next lactation. Um, there's another fat, new faculty member there who's working on the uh, impacts on the fetus and carryover effects on its life 
but she's been able to demonstrate reduced production in the calves that are born from heat stress mothers. So uh, this is an area that's going to continue to be investigated. And uh, the, the, the main hypothesis we have uh, developed was that there was an association between placental and fetal weight and the association between placental fetal and mammary growth. Uh, and uh, recently, the Limison lab in Arizona developed a model uh, where they can alter fetal catecholamines produced during gestation. And we have been able to demonstrate that that does affect uh, memory growth. And his model is, he comes in, uh, this just shows that the interuterine growth retarded fetus, which is the, the dashed line, you can see that from mid-gestation on, if you uh, heat stress uh, in this period, you'll reduce the placenta, which subsequently leads to reduced vasculature uh, in the placenta and also reduced uh, growth of the fetus. And not shown here is the mammary gland growth, which is occurring over here, is also negatively impacted. So uh, Sean has uh, developed a, a way to actually remove the adrenal from the fetus. And sheep is unique in that you can actually take the fetus out during gestation, uh, surgically manipulate it, put it back in the uterus, and it won't abort. Every other domestic animal will do that. And the reason is the placenta is a primary source of progesterone uh, from mid-pregnancy on for the sheep. In the cow, and the horse, and pig, it's still the ovary. So if you open up the uterus, you get prostaglandins being produced, which is kind of current exchange, you know, between the ovary and the, and the, and the uh, uterus, it knocks out the CL. So the animal's going to abort about eight days later. Bill Thatcher, Fuller Baser, probably did a couple hundred animals trying to figure a way to use a dairy cow and never found a way to do it because animals always abort. But the, the sheep is a great model for this. So uh, we know that heat stress during gestation reduces placental fetal memory development. And then if, if we demedulate, uh, and I don't have time to go through all that data, he's still collecting, but we could demonstrate that you can restore memory development in the mother by demedulating, taking the catecholamine producing tissue out of the adrenal in the gestation in, in the sheep fetus. So that is a appears to be one of the primary signals of reducing uh, memory growth. But uh, there's still a lot of work to be done in that area. So uh, the impact of cow on the environment, Don Johnson in, in Colorado and Jude Capper and Dale Bauma at uh, Cornell really got to work on this in the 80s and uh, really began to document uh, what's been going on in the US. I like to use this slide because it, it, this is actually for all of agriculture. It doesn't matter what industry you talk about, whether it's the beef industry, the dairy industry, uh, corn, wheat production. We, uh, for the last 50 years, have been increasing output while holding input costs basically the same or even lower. And so this has resulted in huge increases in agricultural productivity. So how does that play out in the dairy industry? We have uh, reduced the carbon footprint of a gallon of milk from uh, by two-thirds since 1944. So the environmental impact of the dairy industry uh, has been dramatically reduced in, in all, all of agriculture, we see the same kinds of trends, uh, which is, uh, is really a lot of people don't understand how this was done. But practically, here's the numbers. Uh, in 1944, we had 25 million dairy cows. Okay. Today, we have 8.7 million dairy cows, producing more milk than the 25 million cows did in 1944. So we're not feeding all those extra cows with all their basal metabolic rate costs. All that food is going to another part of the egg industry, of our agriculture rather, uh, and it increases profitability uh, for the dairy producer, it lowers the cost of goods at the marketplace for the consumer. 
So practically, you know, in the U.S., we spend about nine cents out of every dollar for food. In Europe, it's 20 cents. In Africa, it's about 75 cents. Now, if you were paying 75 cents out of every dollar you made to put food on your table, we wouldn't be sitting here. We wouldn't be in this classroom because you wouldn't have the kind of money, uh, additional money to do it. You know, uh, this is um, a, a cheap source of food uh, is often unappreciated in this country, but it is, has great benefits for society. I go to Pakistan and uh, this is something that uh, I experienced firsthand in Pakistan. They've got about a tenth of the land mass of the U.S. Uh, they've got about half the number of people that we did on that one tenth of land mass. But they have 45 million water buffaloes, 20, uh, 38 million dairy cows, and they only produce 29 million tons of milk. So we have 8.4, 8.5 million dairy cows, 196 million tons of milk. We're exporting milk and hay. In Pakistan, there's chronically a shortage of milk, and there's always a shortage of forage, because they're feeding too many animals uh, to get a very low amount of milk. I mean, that's it in a, in, a, in a basket. When you increase efficiency, you can get rid of them. We should, you know, in the long run, they should be able to get rid of half of the <coughs> half the water buffalo and produce more milk than they're producing now. And they will not be short of milk and they won't be short of forage. But they have to institute the kind of uh, agricultural practices that allow you to do that, including improved genetic selection. Okay, so in vitro models came into play uh, about in the 1980s, and I've got one example. We developed uh, this is mammary epithelial cells you can grow in collagen gels and grow in three dimensions. And you can get those to undergo uh, lactogenesis. Uh, if you change the hormonal complex, the ends of those ducts will develop little bulbs and then they'll blow up into balloons uh, as they start to secrete milk. So it's a way to study factors regulating uh, milk synthesis, but you can also look at heat stress effects. And on the top here, uh, these are uh, different cultures, but uh, this is what you see in a ductile tree after about seven days of thermal neutral, 24 hours of heat shock, and this is what uh, is happening. The cytoskeleton has collapsed. The cytoskeleton is made up of small, uh, small proteins, and there's a class of heat shock proteins that protect those structures. And uh, this is basically what happens when the cytoskeleton uh, collapses. Now, the, the embryo is uh, exquisitely sensitive to heat stress for this reason, because if the cytoskeleton is collapsing on a developing embryo, the cells are not in the right place at the right time. And so, you know, if you've ever taken embryonic development, you know that's critical. Cells have to be in an exact location at a specific time in order for normal embryogenesis to occur. So if this is going on, uh, you know, this, the uh, developing embryo is not going to make it. So uh, and, uh, cells that can upregulate and maintain a uh, high expression of heat shock proteins are considered thermal tolerant. And uh, those that uh, cannot have uh, lost their thermal tolerance and they're in the process of dying. And this just shows when we looked at heat shock protein gene expression, uh, it's only about four hours before uh, at 42 degrees centigrade, the cells lose their ability. Uh, and you can extend this with certain molecules. I don't have time to go through, but it can be extended. Uh, but the important thing is that thermal tolerance uh, in a normal developing memory epithelial cell only uh, lasts for about four hours at that temperature. Well, if you think about uh, temperatures that dairy cows go through, they go to those temperatures every day in Arizona. Uh, and the mammary gland, because of its metabolic rate, it's got uh, more heat being produced there than other parts of the body. So uh, there, it's an area, an active area of investigation is uh, how are those cells able to withstand that kind of stress and not uh, die? We looked at gene expression at these time periods uh, to see what was going on and what we found uh, you know, this is a Venn diagram showing the different uh, 
pathways that are up and down regulated at, at uh, two, four, and eight, uh, 16 hours. I keep wanting to use my finger to point it <laughs> instead of the pointer. Uh, so in the first two hours, DNA repair uh, is going on and there's a lot of transport secretion. Um, I think one of the things that's being transported out are heat, uh, secreted heat shock proteins because these act as signaling to other cell types to uh, uh, indicate, you know, there's, there's a major stress occurring. Uh, then uh, at four hours, we see protein repair, uh, upregulation of heat stress proteins, uh, cell cycle arrest proteins start going up, uh, down-regulating transcription, glycolysis, branch morphogenesis, that's uh, <coughs> the genes that are associated with uh, the structure being built as, as uh, ducts grow, and then uh, differentiation. And then the last, uh, the cell death cycle, by 16 hours, they've already started going into the, what's, what's called apoptosis, or cell death, and you're, you're down-regulating everything associated with the ability to withstand the stress. So uh, upregulated genes were ones that we we looked at, uh, and it turns out that several of these pathways they looked uh, in these genome-wide association studies, they looked at heat-tolerant cattle and less-tolerant cattle, a lot of these pathways are identified. Uh, so the cellular uh, story is, is matching up pretty well with the whole animal story. And uh, we, we also looked at uh, down-regulated genes because, you know, maybe down-regulation is more important than up-regulation. Not sure. Uh, we, we do see a lot of uh, things going on to shut down metabolism and develop the cytoskeleton. These synaptic protein uh, are also downregulated. So, how much of the milk yield uh, loss do we get that we get at heat stress? How much of that is actually direct effects on the cells? Uh, we know from Lance's work that only about half of it can be assigned to direct effects. And the other half is associated with feed intake. Uh, one of the things that uh, uh, Lance uh, found was that uh, fatty acid metabolism was not an energy source in uh, a heat stress cow, even though it was in negative energy balance. See, typically when animals are in negative energy balance, they start mobilizing lipids to burn as a fuel source. That doesn't happen in a heat stress cap. Lance was the first to show that. Also, uh, glucose uh, uptake is increased in, in uh, heat stress animals. We can show these same effects at the cellular level. So basically, what we're showing at the cell is what he was able to show systemically uh, in all animals. And and so he's he's shown that uh, you know this this is turned off. <coughs> Uh, because he believes it's because insulin uh, secretion remains uh, relatively elevated, becomes uh, more insulin secreted, and that prevents adipose tissue from mobilizing non-esterified fatty acids. But this is uh, still an active area of investigation. So this is another frontier, the intermediary metabolism in, in the heat-stressed animal and how that's integrated between the systemic and cellular components. Okay, now I've, I've mentioned, uh, you know, three of the four routes of heat loss are uh, sensible and they come to zero here at body temperature. And the only thing left for the animal is evaporative heat loss. That's why animals pant, at least ruminants. Uh, and they do sweat, but they really don't do a very good job of it. And unfortunately, in, in Arizona, this is where dairy cows spend most of their time, right here, uh, with this being the only route of available heat loss to them. When you look at uh, surface temperature and, and uh, rectal temperature, you can see that animals can hold their rectal temperature constant until they get to about 35 <coughs> degrees centigrade surface temperature, and then they start storing heat. They just can't dissipate it. I mean, the gradient is not there. So uh, 
This is another measure I use when I tell producers, he said, how can I assess heat stress in my animals? I said, get an infrared gun, uh, walk around your barn. You don't even have to be within 10 feet. You can take an infrared uh, surface temperature. If it's above 35, those animals are getting hot. If the respiration rate's above 60, those animals are getting hot. <clears throat> so you don't have to touch an animal to really understand whether it's being heat stressed. We look at sweating rate, the dairy cows, you know, it's highly variable. There's a lot of genetic differences between animals in sweating rate. And this is that 35 degree uh, break point. And, you know, some animals hardly change their sweating rate at all. Some do a really good job of it. But uh, as a group, that's pretty low. You're looking at grams per meter squared, that's, you know, around 200 would be maximal. Uh, how does that compare to other animals? Oh, the, the champion sweater in the animal kingdom is the horse. Horse can move three liters per square meter at peak sweating peaks. Humans, it's about half that. We're pretty good sweaters. Dairy cows, only 200 milliliters. Uh, with the very same sweat gland the horse has. Horse has an apocrine sweat gland just like the dairy cow. It is able to move three liters Dairy cow can just move 200 pounds. If a dairy cow could sweat like a horse, we would be able to really improve their thermal tolerance. And it wouldn't require messing with metabolism, uh, wouldn't require uh, some of the things that uh, people are talking about trying to achieve, like upregulating heat shock proteins permanently. Uh, that's got some real high risk issues like cancer and immune issues. Heat shock proteins also are involved in regulation of the immune system. So uh, if we could just improve evaporative heat loss in dairy cows, it would be a huge thing. So looking at the apocrine sweat gland, there's one associated with each hair follicle. And they, this should be thought of as a single unit, the hair follicle <coughs> and the sweat gland, because the hair fiber dictates how much uh, sweat can be evaporated. So you can, you can alter uh, what's called sweating rate, really you're just altering evaporation rate by changing the hair color. Uh, you can, you can uh, also alter the activity of these cells, the secretory cells, and you can dramatically alter cooling activity. And this is probably the, and how it gets to the surface is through contraction of myoepithelial cells, just like the mammary gland. Remember the mammary gland is a skin gland and so is the sweat gland. You know, if we can get cows to produce 150 pounds of milk a day, we can get uh, cows to sweat three liters a day, I believe. Because it's uh, very similar cell types. We've developed, uh, uh, I did studies with uh, Peter Hellman and uh, Keith Lee at Birmingham at Cornell and uh, Chen Lee at University of Hawaii. Uh, we did uh, look at Air code characteristics, sweating rate, and airflow, and basically uh, can show you uh, that it can have some big impacts. Of course, the color of the hair code makes a difference. We'll get this was all done in full sun. You can see that uh, sweating rate was maximal with one meter per second of wind speed on a shade hair code. So we took away the hair factor to uh, improve evaporation. And we, we got to 600. That's, that's a fairly big increase, you know, basically 200. You know. You're tripling the heat loss from the animal. So if you, if you didn't have time, I would advise some people to do this. There was a dairy in Bangkok that got in a big shipment of heifers from the US, Wisconsin, I believe. They all had winter haircuts, and they were going to be calving in about 30 days. They asked me what I, what can we do to get them ready for the heat when they cap. I said shave them, shave every one of them, and they did, and they all and they uh, they came in without problems because they were able to effectively get rid of their heat loads. So black is uh, higher than white because the black hair coat's about five degrees centigrade hotter in the sun, and which increases vapor pressure, which means you evaporate more water. Uh, it's not an advantage because the black hair coat absorbs more heat. So net net, uh, the animal gets hotter, 
So white white hair coats preferred uh, because it, you absorb less heat in the sun. <coughs> this is a slick hair coat. Uh, how many people have heard of the slick gene? Anybody? Okay, a few of you have. The slick gene, all it is, it is a mutation in the prolactin receptor which changes the hair follicle. Uh, it changes the type of hair produced by that follicle to make it a very short, smooth. You can see how much this uh, uh, glistens here. And you notice also you can see pigmented skin under the hair coat. And the other looks like it's been shaved. It hasn't been shaved. It's just the way it looks, you know. This animal is about a degree centigrade cooler than the one next to it. And all, that, all they did, they didn't modify the activity of the sweat gland, they changed the hair coat. The only trouble with this is prolactin is a fairly important hormone from a reproduction standpoint. Uh, homozygous animals uh, don't appear. It's, it appears to be illegal. You gotta be heterozygous uh, to have the advantage and still be able to reproduce. So uh, it's a challenge. So we started, uh, a, a developed a method for isolating uh, sweat glands. Uh, this is in situ, this is a sweat gland. You can see there's two cell types here. The green is the, my, the, the epithelial cells which secrete sweat and the red are the myoepithelial cells that contract and squeeze the sweat up to the surface. These are isolated and you can see we've disrupted some of that interaction. So these are myoepithelial cells and these are epithelial cells. Uh, turns out sweat glands take up neutral red, which is really advantageous because you can't see it. When you first uh, start working up uh, skin to find sweat glands, you can't even see it. Uh, but when, when they take up neutral red, they're pretty easily defined, especially after you've uh, collagenase digested and uh, use a percolate gradient to separate out the layers and you'll see a red band that's loaded with these glands. We then take those and we have uh, done a workup on uh, receptors. We've got serotonin receptors, uh, several important uh, members of the serotonin receptor subtype. <coughs> Only the short form of the prolactin receptor is present. And uh, the growth hormone receptor is present and uh, we had done a study when I was at Monsanto in Missouri showing that we got a very, a fairly big increase in sweating rate when we gave animals growth hormone. So growth hormone uh, is, is a molecule that does regulate sweat gland function. And the last one is adrenergic receptors. So there's, there's a, a, a lot of future research here uh, that needs to be done. And uh, I'm hopeful that someone will uh, take the opportunity to find which ones are really regulating sweat gland activity and getting that sweat to the surface. Uh, and how can we help the cows stay cooler in the heat? So this is what needs to be done. We need to identify the factors regulating sweating rate, both in horses and cattle, so we can find out why the horse does it so well. Uh, then we need to actually start measuring evaporative heat loss, which very few people did, but we've, it should become a tool for genetic selection. We need to add it to our uh, component of uh, markers and phenotypic data. Okay, so all of these things, uh, like the genome-wide association studies and uh, metabolomics, uh, passive forms of cooling, gene insertion, cloning, all those became possible after the bovine genome was published but now the porcine genome, the avian genome. These are all available and we can really start uh, working on improving thermal tolerance of these domestic animal species. And what I see uh, in the future is we're gonna take advantage of uh, genomics uh, to improve the animal, but we're also gonna use things like, uh, I didn't have time to go through, but passive cooling, like just providing uh, water exchange, coolers underneath sand, beds uh, effectively cools animals. They can, uh, they can transfer heat to their bed that they're lying on. And uh, when you combine that with convection and evaporation, you can improve the productivity of these animals. Nice thing about this form of cooling is you don't use any water, it's recircled, recirculated. You don't evaporate it. And all you do is you, you uh, remove the heat by cooling it. 
they can use the plate cooler and the milky product uh, potentially to drive uh, cooling of the dairy barns. So uh, it, it's got a future. Uh, uh, I have worked with uh, uh, some uh, major uh, milk uh, housing uh, uh, operations. And they, we, we estimate when you put in a new dairy barn, this is kind of something you want to think about down the road. It's going to take about $100 per animal to install this uh, to where you, you would have it underneath your uh, sand bed and, and take advantage of that cooler. All right, thank you. I'll be glad to answer any questions. Do you have any questions for Dr. Collier? Um, I have a question, but not, not quite about the research, but more of just maybe projections. You said you think water rationing is becoming, might become an issue in Arizona in the next couple of years? Oh, I do. Uh, if we don't get it, I mean, we've been uh, in a drought now for 30 years. Do you, see, um, do you see dairy farms moving out of Arizona in the next few years? Places like Nebraska, Kansas, South Dakota, like they have been? Or? Well, the way it works in Arizona is you buy more rights. And uh, that's what they'll do. They'll buy more rights. The, uh, you know, the, the uh, Indian tribes have a lot of water rights. Right now, cities and uh, producers compete for those water rights. Uh, cities tend to win out on those because they got more money. Uh, but you know, the problem with uh, milk is it's because of its uh, cost of transport. Dairies tend to be close to cities. So uh, when you talk about transporting very far, and you know, Florida, the milk price in Florida is based on production cost of Florida plus the cost of transporting milk from Wisconsin. So that's why when it's $14 in Wisconsin, it's $17 in Florida, arguably. So, uh, that's an example of a state that probably shouldn't even be producing milk because milk's already priced to be shipped in. But they still have dairies down here. Uh, Okeechobee, I always said if I was a dairy cow, what the hell, it'd be Okeechobee. <laughs> that is a tough place to be a cow. It's really tough. Any other questions? Yeah, I have a Collier, I noticed you had some biological variation around the cow's ability to sweat. Yeah. So has anyone looked at the heritability of that trait? No, that was, uh, uh, I had a student who was, uh, that was actually part of, uh, and he uh, changed his goals and moved on. I never found another student. It's, a, it's what I would call some low-hanging fruit that needs to be done. You get, uh, I think it's going to be fairly heritable. We have a lot of variants there to work with, which is a good thing. And I think that's true of beef and dairy cows. I think that it's just as big an opportunity in the beef industry as it is in the, in the dairy industry. Even greater because they provide almost no shade to uh, feedlots. It's rare to see, uh, even in Arizona, it's rare to see much in the shade. I remember in Florida, cows would line up behind uh, one cow to each fence post, trying to get the shade from a single fence post on its head. And that, that's where they always try to cool the head. The other thing you talked about was the, the sick fan being the higher risk yeah. for death loss. What, what about the, the stressors related to milk production? In other words, are there really high milk producers also? Yeah, that's, and that's a paradox. Let me, let me explain why. Uh, you cannot get to high production without removing stress in the cow. So production, the cows that set production records, I think we're at 73, 74,000 uh, pounds in 305 days, or 365 days. Um, you can't get to that without having minimal stress. So it's a paradox to say that high production is a stress. You need to remove all the stressors in order to get to high production. So I contend that produ high production itself is not a stress. What's stressful is when a producer doesn't manage the cow properly. And because of that, it cannot reach its genetic potential. And so it's underfed or it's got poor housing or it's not the hygiene and the milking parlor is not good. Uh, 
There's a thousand ways to fail in the dairy industry. And the only way to succeed is all of those things have to work. Uh, but there are many, many ways to create stressors on cows. Even social interactions can be stressful if they're not, not if animals are constantly sorted, moved from pen to pen, it creates new uh, pecking orders. And so animals have to go through the process of reestablishing who's at the top of the chain. So uh, that management is not good for production. So putting heifers with older cows is also not very smart because they're never going to compete for the feed box space. There's just a lot of things that can happen that we don't, if we're not aware of it, we don't. The, the, the key is education of producers who, who then recognize what the stressors are. And if they can remove those, they can have high production. But if you look at the normal distribution of milk yield in the United States, the mean is around 22, 23,000 pounds. Uh, you go down to the, the low end, and then compare that group to the high end, to which cows are most stressed, it's not the high end cows. It's those cows in the low end that are, have the most issues. So I, I don't see high production of stress. Yeah. So a couple of the genes that you were talking about, this uh, prolactin receptor mutation, the slick gene, mm -hmm. is that a mutation where the receptor is non-functional? Yes, uh, that's correct. And there are several things around the prolactin receptor in the hair follicle. There's another, uh, that, that specific mutation was discovered in New Zealand. There's another mutation that's been discovered in Puerto Rico uh, that is a different uh, results in a different hair type, but also is more efficient in cooling. Uh, and then there's uh, the case of ergot poisoning. Uh, if, if you go to the Midwest, like Kentucky, where ergots grow in the, in the grasses, uh, if a cow gets ergot poisoning, it suppresses prolactin. And she maintains a winter coat in the summer. And as a result, she's very heat intolerant and lose a lot of cows to heat stress. Uh, Don Spire spent a lot of time working on that in Missouri. So, so if that's a mutation, the receptor, you also said that growth hormone, uh, you were talking about growth hormone. There is a growth hormone sweat. receptor present in the, in the uh, secretory cell. And so if you were going to increase sweat, are you going to Activate that receptor, or do you want to mutate? You want to activate it. it. Okay. Uh, and uh, so, just just injecting growth hormone was what we did. We increased uh, evaporative heat loss about twenty-five percent okay. in these animals, and we were measuring uh, evaporative heat loss in thermal neutral and in heat stress environments. I that was uh, Harold Johnson. But they work through the same signal transduction pathway, prolactin and growth hormone. But it looks like they're very diverse. Yeah, well, there, there is no prolactin receptor in the secretory oh, cell, only okay. the growth hormone. The prolactin receptor is in the hair follicle. I see. That's the difference. <coughs> yes. Assuming the animal doesn't die over the long term. What's the greater cost of production? More of an acute, uh, severe stress or chronic, moderate stress? Oh, so if you, uh, if you were comparing the two. Yeah. Uh, so with chronic stress, uh, the animal's going to undergo acclimatization. Yeah. So which will reduce the effects. And they'll, they'll, they'll attempt to get back to where they were on production. Uh, if they're really high levels of production, they'll never get there. But at lower levels, they will get back to where they were. With the problem with acute stress, there's no time to acclimatize, and they're going to drop. I didn't have time to show it, but we recently summarized uh, feed intake responses to three days of heat shock and broke it out by levels of milk yield. And uh, at, at the highest levels of milk yield, uh, they drop like a rock. So there's a pretty substantial carryover effect from the acute. Yeah. 
And the, the other thing, uh, so there's an immediate loss in production. And what's driving the drop in intake? Uh, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure, I think, it's some signal from the memory gland saying we're, we're shutting down. You've got to drop intake. Interestingly, water intake drops too, because they're drinking way in excess of maintenance water. And their water intake drops. Everybody says, well, water intake will increase. Not in hyper busy dairy cows. I'm going to present that at uh, the Orchard Conference this next February. This data, uh, which really surprised us. So, um, there's one other thing I was going to point out. I think slipped in, slipped out. Maybe I'll remember here in a minute. It's part of the problem with aging. <laughs> if you don't grab it, it disappears. <laughs> Is there any inflammatory response in heat stress? In other words, what happens? Well, this is an area Lance has been working on, the leaky gut syndrome. Um, and his contention is that uh, gut cells are extremely sensitive to heat shock. Uh, and as a result, uh, they become leaky, which allow these inflammatory peptides or compounds help lipopolysaccharides in, which then have all their side effects. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I think that potentially that contributes, but uh, we've, we've got another, uh, been watching another phenomenon in uh, the mammary gland. And I ran a study where we were looking at a feed additive and we were looking at somatic cells. And during the thermal neutral and heat stress period, there was no change in somatic cells. And suddenly, when we put them back in thermal neutral, we had this huge spike in both uh, in both dietary treatments. And at first, I, I blamed it on the grad students. that somebody contaminated the milking equipment. I wanted the milk culture, and, uh, you know, couldn't find a bug. And it came back down. It was only elevated for only a day. Uh, repeated the study, got the exact same results. So now I'm beginning to think uh, that these mammary epithelial cells that are heat shocked actually are sloughed off when the animal gets back to thermal neutral. And so the next study we're going to do is actually collect, uh, separate out uh, the cell types, uh, which um, it's really difficult to tell a phagocyte from a, uh, a gorged mammary epithelial cell. But if you use uh, RNA uh, targets, like if you look for genes associated with milk synthesis, uh, like lactosynthetase or casein genes, those cells only light up if they're producing milk. So we're, we're going to do uh, an analysis on, on those cell types. But uh, if the same thing's going on in the gut, it wouldn't necessarily be during the stress, it'd be immediately after you might see something. If, if that, of course, it's all conjecture at this point. I haven't proved anything. I've got a hypothesis. Yeah. So what's the incidence of secondary infections? It's greater in acute stress than, than chronic stress. Chronic is, is secondary infections are going to be greater in chronic stress. Uh, acute stress, uh, and that's, I'm talking, uh, that's really the first three days. You don't see much So from a from a heat stress standpoint, it makes sense why animals will decrease feed intake. But from a, a pathogen standpoint, from an evolutionary standpoint, why would pro-inflammatory cytokine cause a reduction in caloric intake when it be those animals? Need well, I, I agree. I don't. I don't. I don't quite uh, accept that. Yeah. Right. And also, why would it be related to level of milk? Yet? Because I can tell you that we can break it out in five kilogram increments, and there's definitely uh, different slopes, and, and uh, it's not even significant until uh, you get above uh, 30 pounds of milk a day. Why would that? I mean, if that was just uh, leaky gut, I don't think that relationship would hold. So I, uh, I think something is coming from the mammary gland that drops into. It was an Israeli uh, scientist who claimed to have found that. Uh, it 
claimed it was a it was a partial digestion of casein. No one's been able to duplicate. They weren't could themselves. Which is always a bad sign. That was like a good time to transition. Uh, a little after one, so I know a lot of folks have places to go. Uh, Dr. Collier has um, will be with us for about an hour or so, and we're going to grab lunch. Are we in this room? Uh, yeah. Yeah, we're in Okay, you remember which one? It's eight spots here, but yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, well, if you have uh, questions, you have questions, yeah. yeah. You can hey, if you want to email yeah. me, I'll be glad to answer uh, any questions by email that we don't get to. If you leave my email address, I'll put it That's uh, excellent. I appreciate it.